welcome to Doing Diversity in Writing, the podcast where we, as writers, explore the do's and don'ts of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany Ann Tucker, and with me is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Let's get started. Hello, Marielle. How are you doing today? Hey, Bethany. I am having one of those days that I'm going to look at my to-do list. And yes, um, it is 6.30 p.m. here, and I have yet to do most of what's on my list that doesn't happen a lot to me, so I'm slightly frustrated. Um, but I did get my writing done this morning. Hooray! So there's that. Yes, there's that. Um, small comfort. How are you? I am preparing to travel again. I have a little bit of a fog in my throat, so I'm hoping to modulate that for everyone listening. And I can sincerely say that, again, no spiders were killed in this podcast. But we may have lost a roach or two in the making of this podcast. Oh, no, not again. But I'm they were, I, they were little ones. Okay, yeah, I, I've heard rumors about those. Uh, we, we tend to have the big ones here. Apparently, we also have flying ones, but I haven't yet. Oh, seen. these fly. These definitely fly. Oh, amazing. Okay. Yes, I'm just in the big ones here fly. Yeah, well, apparently... The big ones here fly too, but I have yet to encounter. We did have a dead roach in the hallway, by the way. Um, so someone's been spraying. But yeah, I'm mostly bugged, literally, by mosquitoes. So I lost a few nights sleep this week. That which, would contribute yeah. to your to-do list not being completed. Yeah, it doesn't really help with the, with the brain fog, no. Yeah, So I'm sorry. On the plus sorry. side... I have started Unchosen 2, the second massive book. Hallelujah. Yes, I've heard that if I don't write this, um, some people will become looking for me. So I'm going to get yes. it done. Yes, I've, I've started looking at plane tickets <clears throat> just to kick your ass in person. You yeah. don't want to come here yet. We still have COVID. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> Very much the so same. I'm... Yeah. That's kind of dark humor that I'm just have to get it done before the pandemic is over. So you don't come after me. Yes. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> what, what kind of deadline is that? I'll finish this book when the pandemic is over. Oh, great. That gives me maybe a few years. We don't know. No, no. I'm much more, I'm much more positive about how long this is going to take. Okay, good. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm giving myself till May. All right, but today, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> today, uh, we're talking, uh, we're on episode 11. Yes. And we're talking about problems with light and dark, marking and unmarking. Um, so we're moving into the end of our first season here. And we'll have one more episode after today. And then just take a couple weeks off and be back in January with season two, episode one. Yes, we will. And that's when we'll move on from this season, which was a lot of setting up, a lot of theory uh, that we've been doing. And we will start breaking things down into examples. We'll have some interviews um, and we'll focus on particular sets of representation. Exactly. The nuts and bolts and the practical applications, if you will. Yes. And we also have another announcement. Today's episode is sponsored by Crystal Shelley, who is the author of the Conscious Language Toolkit for Writers. Uh, link is in the show notes, of course. So a little shout out to Crystal for making this episode possible. Yes, we very much appreciate the support. Podcasting is not free, at least not on the scale that we're doing it. And sponsors like Crystal help us pay hosting and distribution fees so that we can keep bringing your education, you education and information like we're doing today. So thank you for listening. And we hope you find the sponsors that we do bring in helpful. 
Yes, and it also, um, of course, allows us time away from our other jobs and projects to do the research that we need to do for the show and you know, to, to you know, write the book that we're intending to write. Um, and just by the way, while we're on the topic, if you've been enjoying the episodes we've been putting out, please go into your favorite podcasting app and rate and review. It really does help, not just with getting found by other listeners, but it might also entice others to sponsor one of our episodes. Um, and of course, if you're feeling super supportive today, please post about the podcast, uh, share it on your socials, um, and tell your writer friends to listen to. That would seriously be helpful. And thank you for advance, or thank you if you've already done any of that. So today, um, we're going to pick up from where we left off in episode 10, but move on beyond grammar and explore how we use marking and unmarking and in terms of language and the level of description. So if this episode had a subtitle, it would be problems with light and dark, marking and unmarking in terms of language, in terms of place and character description. Yeah, which is way too long. That doesn't show up very well in a podcasting app. We only have like 100 characters or something. Dang it. All right. Well, let's get into it anyway. I'll give up on my subtitle. Okay. So this topic, at least how it's carried out, is very culturally dependent. Um, describing things as good or bad, welcoming or frightening, like bad or evil, that kind of stuff. It is done differently depending on history, religion, region. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the cultural baggage, really, that people have. Exactly. The things we choose to mark and how we choose to mark them matters, depending on who and where and when we are in relationship to day-to-day -day life. But certainly in our fiction, um, there are things we or our characters choose to mark or not mark. And then there are things that are often impossible for us to see, or perhaps we specifically make it obvious to the reader of our story that our characters cannot see something because of their orientation to the world. Yeah, I, th I think we need some concrete examples to make this more relatable. Yeah, concrete examples help. Um, yes. one, of the <laughs> one of the clearest examples I can think of in recent literature that reached staggering amounts of readers around the world is the Twilight series. Whether or not you take the genre and those, that series seriously yourself, they were and remain a significant monetary powerhouse in the publishing industry, um, selling millions of copies and inspiring a series of feature films. Um, the films alone, not counting the books, um, made 3.3 billion US dollars worldwide, according to CheatSheet.com. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. <laughs> I figured this was a good series to look at as it appears to have been translated into 37 or 38 languages, depending on which article you read. In 2008 alone, so early on, 27 million copies of the books in the series were sold worldwide. It's hard to argue with that kind of reach and what kind of effect that amount of hype can have with so many people reading. Yes. And, you know, I actually read the first book um, a couple of years after it came out. I think all the films were out by then as well, but I haven't seen any of those. Um, there was so much criticism amongst my feminist friends. Um, I never really felt like investing in it, even though I know a lot of people who are like huge Twilight fans. But I was very curious about the writing, um, about how it had come to be such a hit that I picked up the first book at a local library at some point, just as a case study. Of course. Um, I spent a lot of time near Forks, Washington, where the Twilight series is primarily set. Um, so when the books come out, came out, I really felt that I had to read them. I was like, it's, it's my hometown area. Um, you know, give or take an hour by driving. It was probably the first work I read set in my area. So I was really excited about it. I think it was 2008 I read them, 2009. I'm not sure exactly. So you like the representation of that particular identity marker, the having something famous set in your home area. Yeah, I mean, it gave me something else to say because I was tired of everyone saying, oh, you live in, near Seattle. Have you seen Sleepless in Seattle? Every time, like every time. Um, this is back when I went to college. So now I could say, you know, it's near where Twilight was set. Um, and then people kind of got it or at least acted like they got it. Um, 
So I certainly enjoyed being able to say that. And the setting, um, I, I like the setting enough to overlook a lot of things in the story that I wouldn't overlook now. Um, we learn, we grow. So if you've read and enjoyed the Twilight series, I am casting no aspersions on you. I did myself. I read all four of the books with my sisters and my mother. We enjoyed them together. We passed the copies back and forth, talked about them. The series is, like I said, set in Forks, Washington, and um, some of the books uh, I read set in the area very close to where I grew up. So I visited some of the other areas besides Forks as I was a child. So when I was reading the books, I was like, oh, I know what that looks like. It was it was cool to see the landmarks. Um, it brought some magic into the mundane of my quote unquote normal life. And hey, it had been years since I'd been able to share a story with my mom and my sisters since I'd been away in China and Ohio. So it was it was a lot of fun. Besides, you know, aside the content of the book, it's it's actually enjoyable uh, in terms of how it's written. So the content made me cringe again and again, um, but I still finished reading it in about a day. So I do understand the appeal, like it's very well paced and it's it's really set up like a page turner. Oh, very much a page turner. Um, as I read the story, I really enjoyed pretty much all of it. Um, it didn't really lose its shine for me until towards the end of books three and into book four, when Jacob, um, one of the werewolves in the story, the, the main one, assaults a significant character and regresses to almost a permanent like mute canine state um, and is only tamed and civilized by um, uh, the mother, Colin in the family, one of the vampires. And to be honest, at the time, I couldn't really express why I was unquieted by the turn of events. I thought I was just frustrated with love triangles and the fact that I was never team Edward, um, quote unquote, but the, the experience did leave me unsettled. And I did not watch the rest of the films after number one, you're laughing. I'm just laughing because I, like I said, like I was living in Dublin at the time when it was like hitting its peak. So that was 2009. Uh huh. And I remember that there was like in this shop, there were like, you could buy these Team Edward and Team Jacob uh, oh. shirts. So every time you were in that particular shopping center, like whenever mm -hmm. you saw this group of girls walk past, there would always be this discussion, right? <laughs> about what team they were on. Um, and I was just, just because I knew what they looked like, both of them, right? So I was like, uh -huh. well, I'm never, I would never be Team Edward because I just think, I mean, Robert Patterson is just, sorry, people, he's, that's just not my type. You mean uh, a very good Cedric in Harry Potter. But still a bit creepy and pompous. <laughs> so it's just not like, there's a lot about him. Not your type. S sorry, Robert. There's, a, there's just something about, <laughs> The uh, so what I did see like flashes or trailers, I'm just like, yeah, never gonna be Team Edward. So that just made me laugh. Sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry for that. We all, we all have what what makes us tick, excited. not tick. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I I watched the first one, and that unsettled feeling has just grown. And I did not watch the rest of the films after that. Um. And yeah, I don't remember how long it was after I read the books that I watched the first film. It was some time later. Okay. So did you in the meantime figure out what made you feel so unsettled? Because when I read that first book, I had absorbed all of the criticism that I had already heard about the series. So I went in with the language, uh, which must have provided a very difficult reading experience. I mean, like I said, Twilight hit big when I was studying uh, gender studies in Dublin, right? So I was just very deep into I mean I've, I've always been very deep into feminist literature but that's particular um that particular semester abroad I was just you know always with my feminist friends um so we had major discussions so for me like I could never read it right uh without yeah. that sort of background already because that's when I first heard about it it was already attached to that feminist criticism yeah, again, I still didn't, at the time of reading it, I didn't have language for why I was uncomfortable. I was dating a Black man um, who later became a husband, but I was not fully invested in the challenges of Western literature yet. I was really much more concerned with trying to find a job in 2009, because if you remember, <laughs> that was really hard to do then. I ended up going yeah. to Korea. I, I gave up on the US. I went to Korea. <laughs> um, I had a particular skill set that sold for more there. 
um, teaching English. I could only shrug about the storyline and say, I'm just not comfortable. Um, at first, I did zero in on the inherent tragedy of love triangles. I've never liked them. Come to find out I'm poly, so maybe that's why. <laughs> Who knows? Um, it, that would be an entire rant on my part. I will leave it be. Uh, I didn't have words for poly back then either. Um, so words matter. Words give us a way to like express things and talk about them until they become fully fleshed out. Yeah. Yeah, they really do. Yeah. They, they do. And I just didn't have them yet. Um, yeah. So like I said, I did enjoy reading the first two books. The fourth one, very uncomfortable, lost my taste after that. And I didn't really think about the Twilight Seers much until about two years ago when I ran across an article by Natalie Wilson. And she, I mean, it just hadn't been on my radar. I hadn't been thinking about it. She really helped me articulate what had made me uneasy in my first read. Um, I recommend everyone go read her article. It is not highly academic. It is very accessible. Um, her essay is titled Civilized Vampires versus Savage Werewolves, Race, Race and Ethnicity in the Twilight series. It's a truly scrumptious read and um, it will be in the short show notes. I recommend everyone go read it. Yeah. So yeah, but we'll put that in the show notes. So what exactly did she help you um, articulate? Intentionally or not, and considering how long and deep a cultural heritage Stephanie Myers, the author of the series, has pulled from, and I suspect this was subconsciously, the way she marked her vampires and werewolves set me off. And then some of what happened to follow the marking in the story, the plot-wise, but I'll leave that alone for now. Myers systematically relied on the shorthand markings of light and dark to show preferences in her narratives, painting the vampire clan, the Cullens, with stunning white skin and white homes. I mean, what I, from what I remember, it was like literally radiant skin, like glittery. Um, in the sunlight, yeah, they'd sparkle yes. like diamonds. Yeah, so, which is like diamonds, right? That says a lot. Um, but, you know, I did think that that was an interesting twist, that the vampires in the story had no problem being out during the day and that they were actually... Um, like that was, that was like the glitter was a bit much. Right. But, um, <laughs> and, and I kind of like that, that, that they were surrounded by white instead of being the sort of shadow figures. Right. Uh, that was an, that was an interesting twist for me. It was. Um, um anyway, so, so like we've seen, certainly seen like this kind of imagery before, right. So this way of contrasting between what should be considered good and pure and what should be considered not that, and that is definitely part of our uh, literary heritage or our, our cultural archive. Um, and that's what, of course, Stephanie Myers also pulls from because she belongs to that same uh, heritage. Exactly. A cultural artifact. Going back to Twilight vampires, their lives are literally full of light. But the quillette, I read this word Quil more than I try to say it. I, it's pronounced uh, quillute. Quileute, thank you. Yes. Um, the Quileute tribe, which is a real tribe with real people alive today, are represented in the books first by Jacob, a motorcycle riding teenager and later reluctant werewolf. And he is described in darker shades, a lot of blacks and reds. And there's, there's no problem with having mythical creatures stand in for concepts, dark or light. That's mythology for you quite often. The issue here is that the mythological... The, the mythology that the readers are tied up in, uh, it's tied to the, the mythology that the readers are, are imbibing here is tied up with real people who are alive today. And it casts a certain yeah. negative projection on these real life people and their inherent nature. Yeah, so what the reader gets in, in Twilight is a very straightforward dichotomy, light versus dark. There's the Cullens, the vampires, and they are related to angels and like she describes him like as godlike and they have like godlike characteristics, which I'll have to repeat is a very interesting twist in and of itself. Um, and then there's the Quileute tribe, like the werewolves um, who are related to nature and have more animalistic characteristics. And this is something that Western literature has been doing for quite a while with First Nation and Aboriginal people groups. Uh, actually, anyone who isn't white has been related to yeah. animal kind of uh, states. 
Yeah, for the the twist on the vampires, I would suggest reading Anne Rice because she does. I think she started some of that changing the nature of vampires. But going back to what we were saying, these portrayals the 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 dark and the more animalistics, um, and then the godlike comparisons they are drawn and emphasized by both adjectives but also storyline. So let's get down to the level of the words used in the Twilight narrative, and how they were used to mark. I'm mm-hmm. going to quote from Natalie's essay because I, I just want to, her words are really perfect for this. So I'm quoting, contrastingly, when Bella first sees Jacob and his friends at La Push, she notices the, quote, straight black hair and copper skin of the newcomers, end quote. She describes them as all, quote, tall, all tall and russet skins, black hair cropped short with strikingly similar hostility in every pair of eyes, end quote. As the series continues, the the Quileute's dark faces are emphasized repeatedly in a fashion reminiscent of the notion that all race people look the same. While Edward's eyes and hair are gold, Jacob's are dark. Jacob's last, um, his Jacob's last name is Black, and he, like the other Quileute characters, is associated with a lack of light. His house has narrow um, windows, and he has long, glossy black hair that hangs like black satin curtains on either side of his broad face. Again, I was just quoting from the book there. These descriptions may suggest that his vision is shrouded, that he does not see things clearly. Edward, in contrast, is like an all-knowing god. Significantly, his mind-reading skills are shown as a benevolent power that he uses to protect Bella. End quote from Natalie Wilson. So she makes some really good points here, right? And we also have to recognize one of the first responses many people will have. Like, how do you describe people in places that are objectively darker or darker than the norm or what we see around us without running into these cultural issues? Yeah, we we have to wrestle with that question. And no, we don't have to go in the opposite direction of not acknowledging or not using a description that matches how things appear. We have to extend some effort to step through literally our hundreds of years of coded and marked language in Western literature and break ourselves out of the scripted shorthand of Christian language around quote unquote good and evil. I don't think we can actually talk about this topic without acknowledging the Christian religion and its impact on English literature and likely other Latin language literatures as well, though I don't read them in their original text. What you just brought up could be an episode on its own. Um, Yeah. yeah. The Roman Catholic Church and later the Protestant Church, like they organized and consistently used coded language using color markings that became charged, both in terms of race, class, gender. Etc. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I, I think a lot of cultures do this. Um, yeah. This is the one that we're talking about when it comes to Stephanie Myers. It wasn't until I lived in China that I really became aware of how color coding for positives and negatives worked. I assumed that the same colors were used everywhere for the same things. But in China, red is a good luck color. While I grew up seeing red as a meaning like danger, stop yes. signs. <laughs> High voltage. Yeah, and white, the color I absolutely knew as a little girl I would wear at my wedding, that is the color of mourning in China. Like It it can be used for sadness and someone dying. So how much of this quote-unquote knowing what something means is actually an unconscious adaptation of what we have been given by our environment? Mm -hmm. That is something we have to consider. And I think the point is that we can change and bend the meaning of color. Um, just because you have a positive or negative association with a color or any word for that matter, if the broader audience you're writing for does not have the same association, you have to consider your decision carefully and you may need some extra structure to support your own associations if you want to make that change. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes you can't actually make color mean something through literature, change it or add on to it. Like green and silver makes a lot of people think of Slytherin now. So, <laughs> yeah, that, but that is, yeah. And, and for me, it's like, uh, and, and there's the whole debate. I'm just thinking of now we're talking Harry Potter is that the films actually do the colors differently. And there's been a whole discussion. Like if you download, if you want to download like um, one of the patterns for the scarf, then it is scarf. 
there's like there's like camps like one of them is like no this is the right colors to use because these are the colors used in the book and then the others are saying no these are the right colors because they're used in the so it gets loaded as well it gets charged as well so it's in, it's funny how that goes yes anyway yes. what were you saying well i i wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page what we're talking about here is that when we're talking about color and coding language um what we're really coming back to is being intentional and mindful about the choices we make and not just reaching for our cultural shorthand as a knee-jerk reaction. Um, we're not saying we should not try to use this kind of language, but that you have to know what you're doing and make sure that it's supporting what you really want to say. So it's about becoming conscious of it and using it with awareness. Um... Yes. Yeah, because, you know, there will be times when we want to use an unpleasant or even immoral set of words when writing from a certain perspective, perhaps like in a redemption character arc or something, or to show that a character has certain opinions or learned experiences, etc. Yeah, for example, um, some of the villains in my book, like I said, I was working on Unchosen 2 again, they are extremely racist towards non-human species. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> You're laughing. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it's horrid. Yeah, it, it, it's abhorrent. They yeah. say all kinds of things that I wouldn't say myself, but I intentionally use marked language for them um, that reflect their inner worlds and intentions. It adds tension to my book. Yes. Uh, and because of the way you describe them, it becomes clear how you are, that it becomes clear that what they're saying says that much more about themselves. Exactly. Because of exactly. how you describe the other characters. Um, and, and no so, one thinks that I actually support the villain's opinion. <laughs> oh, no, I, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't think that is possible. If you read the whole book, I don't I think it's very obvious uh, to know where, where you as the author land uh, on things. Anyway, so the, 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 the moral of the story is that um, you have to use this knowledge for good. You have to use it intentionally. You can use it intentionally. It's part of being a writer. Yeah. Before we move on to before we move on to the next um, thing, is this a good spot for our ad? Yes. Let's do that. Writers use language to communicate their message, but when the language is inadvertently biased, exclusive, or disrespectful, it can have a negative effect on readers. Crystal Shelley's Conscious Language Toolkit for Writers serves as a resource for writers who want to craft their messages with conscious language in mind. The Conscious Language Toolkit for Writers helps writers think about how to approach writing about topics such as race, gender, disability, and sexual orientation. It is a PDF resource which makes it easy to navigate and search. The toolkit lists over 300 words and phrases to be aware of as writers, explains why we should be aware of them, and provides potential alternatives. It also includes curated links to numerous resources for further reading. You can purchase this wonderful toolkit by going to www.rabbitwitharedpen.com forward slash shop, or by following the direct link to the toolkit in our show notes. Listeners of this podcast now get 20% off by using the promo code diversity in writing with no spaces. So let's go back to the exact language that's problematic and potentially problematic in Twilight and the cultural reasons why. I'm not going to just assume that everyone gets it right away. Um, I'm saying potentially problematic here because depending on our plots and what we do with an idea or direction, the story of writers, any particular set of words, like we just said, in itself does not have to be a problem. Everything around a word choice matters. Do you want to break some of this down? Yes. Um, like you can almost tally up into different columns how Myers delineates between Bella's choices, you know, between two kinds of life as represented in two different men. Jacob, the Native American who's a werewolf, and Edward, the Europe, the one who has like European descendants, um, who's a vampire. As we said before, it's a choice between light and dark. It's to be honest, it's almost seductive in its simplicity and probably did contribute to the success of the Twilight franchise, to be honest. It is a highly 
McDonough fairy tale where you can easily see the high and lofty and good choice and the lower, less divine choice. It's right there. Yes. And there's a few ways to interpret it based on cultural context. There are. One message that does come through, both through the plot subtly and the description a little more directly, is the association of white with wealth and morality and culture, and darker colors, especially red and black, with animalistic characteristics, physicality, and poverty, to be honest. So that actually goes beyond the racial lines between, just the racial lines between vampires and werewolves. There's like a a bit of intersectionality going on here as well. Quite a bit of intersectionality. So um, I'm going to give some examples and I'm relying on a mixture of my own watching of the first Twilight film, reading the books and Natalie Wilson here. I want to give her credit where credit is due. So let's start with the Collins, the family of um, vegetarian vampires that Edward belongs to. To start with, they are white, um, even more white than Bella herself. And she refers to herself in the books as an albino. Ironically, as I interpret it, she obviously has color in her hair. Uh, She's just very pale. Edward is described with some of the following, um, white, cool, a perfect body, polished like marble. The main bedroom in his house, um, his family's house is dubbed by Bella as the white room. Another color associated with Edward is gold, both in his hair, but also his eyes. And he's associated with shiny objects like the car he drives and the ring he gives Bella. Um, Bella refers to him as godlike, like we said on several occasions. Like this is some classic European Christian slash slash Catholic influenced imagery, right? Yes. And if we follow it all the way down, I'm fairly sure Mormon influenced imagery too, to give credit where credit is due. I would say on the flip side, Jacob and his people are associated with words like russet. One tribe member is described as having skin like an old leather jacket. Bella refers to one of the female tribe members as wolf girl and describes another as having eyelashes like feather dusters. Um, Another time there's a description of crow black hair. There's a certain amount of focus on exotic beauty or not classically beautiful, but exotically beautiful. Mm -hmm. Along with werewolves being present in the tribe, there's a lot of references to just animal traits or animal characteristics being used for description. It's like the story, like down to the adjectives that are used, is drawing a line between animals and gods, and Bella is like the human in the middle. She's caught up in there. Yeah, I would definitely say that's one interpretation that can be used. So really the point is the stacking of these kind of descriptions, settings, and plot points together. It gives this subtle sense of concept um, through everything that the reader is experiencing, and when you're reading, you're almost in a trance-like state, to be honest. So you may not realize what's happening. And especially with a book that is as well-paced as the first Twilight book that I've read. Like that was a really fast read for me. Um, So the point here is intention, whether conscious or not, and how description is played out in like foreshadowing and setting up the outcome of the plot. Yes, I agree. And again, I have no idea how conscious or unconscious Meyer's description choices in the Twilight series were, to be honest. For the story, she told her descriptions completely support her outcome. Um, Jacob has to be cast aside and Edward chosen for Bella to be quote unquote good. It's a morality story wrapped around a love story to some extent. And it worked. As we talked about before, it sold like hotcakes. Yeah, so when you say it worked, I'm not at all comfortable with that. Like, yeah. I, don't li- I don't like that it worked. Well, yes. And, and let's dig into that. Um, Stephanie Meyer was a complete invader, going back to our definitions in episode four, what is or is not cultural appropriation. And she used the Quileute tribe ruthlessly to create the look and feel that she was going for using very Western Mormon culture, which is derived and shared a great deal with, as we said, Christian European literary canon. So part of the point we're making here is that the associations we create as authors need to be mindful and we need to be watching what for, like, for what kind of implications those descriptions can have. For example, going back to Edward, like being associated with godlike features and and self-restraint, Um, And Jacob being associated with frequent nakedness and like raw physical power, but like with very few manners. Yes, 
Yes. And because Jacob comes from a people who actually exist. Uh, that, of course, yes. Yeah, that's just another layer. Yeah. So I'd go further and say that um, the main problem isn't the description of Jacob, Jacob taken singularly, but that mm-hmm. everyone in his people group ends up with the same sort of treatment and that he's contrasted against what he's contrasted against without acknowledgement of how his type of situation, which is very real and is happening right now, comes to be. On top of that, there's no acknowledgement of diversity within diversity for his people group, either in the plot or the descriptions. And we have to take into account the place and time that the books are written, as I just said, which is literally the United States, where we have some serious skin color-based prejudices historically and continuing now systematically. I won't get into all that. We've talked about it before. And then on top of that, class issues. I was just going to say, just hearing you say all these things, I'm like, these are are some of the points that we've discussed in previous episodes, like Mm -hmm. things that you need to watch out for. And and, um, in Twilight, these are being perpetuated. Yes. And we're bringing it up again because it's it's, we're taking this down to the singular language choice. It's like this word here and this word here and they stack up. Yeah. So when we write, what we really have to ask ourselves is what is the outcome of these descriptive choices in this particular context? I think it really does have to come down to that. Yeah. When I was a child, there was a blind woman, probably in her 20s, I think, that came to our church um, sometimes, often with her seeing eye dog and always with her partner. I remember I was uh, kind of frightened of her at first because her eyes would move in ways I hadn't seen someone's eyes move before. And she did a lot of reaching for things because she wasn't in a place where she had mapped it out in her head yet. But if I were to write that scene now of myself meeting her and observing her, I would focus on the way that she held herself tall, the way her dog and her interacted with trust, her sense of humor, how she wore glasses to make others more comfortable around her. And then I would also write about my uncertainty and how my uncertainty was augmented by the uncertainty of the adults around me from who I was taking my cues. This would respect the two levels of the experience, the woman's absolute competence and grace in handling a building and situation not designed to be accessible for her. And my experience meeting someone who was signaled to me as being very different from the norm. So just playing devil's advocate here, But why would you not just focus on your experience? Because I don't want to contribute to the narrative that people with abilities different from standards are incompetent or frightening. I've literally dealt with enough of that in my own life with my own capabilities and challenges. And I don't want to contribute to that false narrative with my writing. That's a very good answer. Um, and I knew you were going to say something like that. Um, but, you know, sometimes we, we have to write someone negatively because that's how our character will see them. Or that's how we need our readers to see them because they're like our villains or... Um, true, or we need to have a certain kind of interaction happen. Um, I don't think you and I could sit here and list all of those today. That would take too long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... I, again, completely green. Sometimes we don't have the luxury of what I just described. And there are a lot of ways that we as authors can signal to our readers that we don't agree with our character's view. Even yeah. if it's as simple as having another character call our character out or express a different point of view on the issue through word or action. Um, have you seen Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame? Yes. Notre Dame? Yeah. Yes. It has some uh, really beautiful dramatic scores, uh, one of which is where the cleric, the villain, talks to the Holy Mother Maria about how righteous he is and compares Esmeralda, Esmeralda, the woman who befriends the titular character um, Quasimodo, to a demon. He's calling her a demon, basically. His opinion of everything, awful as it is, is right out there to be turned at the top of his lungs. Um, but by the end of the film, no one's supposed to agree with him. Exactly. And that's because of how the author decided to portray his character himself. And that's exactly what you're doing in your work. Like you have some of your characters say the most abhorrent things, do the most abhorrent things to the creatures that they do not see as their equals. Right. Um, But the way you describe those characters doing these things and saying these things 
that makes it obvious where you stand and where the other main characters stand um, in that yeah. sort of, yeah, in that dynamic, yeah. 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 So stepping beyond Twilight for just a moment to give some other perspectives and insights, one that comes to mind um, that's not fantasy or focused on race um, is the way we talk about cities, urban areas, landscapes in general. This can be really useful when writing like paranormal, true crime, thrillers, modern literary work, modern romance, etc. Um, so I recently read an article on brookings.edu. They were talking about language and media, such as newspapers and newscasts, but we can easily transfer this to descriptions and fiction. The article starts with a quote from George Orwell, author of 1984, and he says, but if thought corrupts language, then language also corrupts thought. So I'll quote from the third paragraph of the article and we'll again have the link in the show notes. So the article says, this awareness has implications for not only how we talk about people, but also the places where they live. Journalists, practitioners, and researchers, including those of us at Brookings, often employ, employ shorthand labels, such as, quote, distressed places, struggling neighborhoods, high crime areas, and any such combination of deficient plus geography to describe communities impacted by racism, disinvestment, disinvestment physical destruction, and economic exclusion. But just like the labels we attach to people, such language reduces these communities to only their challenges while concealing the systematic forces that cause those challenges and the systematic solutions needed to combat them. I think you mean systemic? Yes, thank you. That's one of the words yeah. I have trouble saying. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, so systemic forces and systemic solutions. Yeah, yeah. So... As writers, when we're looking at describing places, we need to consider who we're placing in that place and how we want our readers to think about them. If we're using terms like high crime and distressed, that paints a certain picture of anyone we play in that specific area. Agreed. And sometimes we may use these terms, but it might mean we're also missing out on telling a fuller story digging deeper into the possibilities of our setting, et cetera, because there's, um, because there's a pride and even though there's a factory that's left a neighborhood or, or a community, some of our characters who are remaining and staying, they might be staying for the memories of a loved one or waiting for someone to come back, or perhaps they can't handle leaving this area that's no longer that economically viable, or maybe the outside world is scary, too scary. So there's a depth that we can mine as authors if we want it when digging into yeah. these descriptions. Or you can subtly change the description of the same place over time to give a different deepening perspective. Like you could start saying, you know, this is an economically depressed area. And then as the story gets deeper, you describe it in different ways. Mm -hmm. I like that. And I think we can give some practical examples here as well. Yes, more and more practical. Yes. Um, so... <laughs> So for, for the practical, uh, say we're trying to describe a small house with small windows that have been covered in dirt. There's also a muddy yard and there's been a recent storm. So we could say she rolled up to the house. She rolled up to the house up the long dirt road covered in potholes from neglect and studied the small brown house. Its eyes, the small filthy windows were dark like a dull creature. So here you've used what some would call coded language, right? You've marked the house with words like neglect, small, brown, dark, filthy, uh, dull. And, and finally, you suggest like inhumanity by calling it a creature. And you've also left out the fact that there has been a recent rainstorm. What we don't say can matter as much as, as what we do say. Yes. Yes. So... This is a perfectly fine description to write. It could be exactly how the character in whose point of view you're writing sees the house. Yeah, let's come back to that last thought in a moment. Okay, good idea. So going back to the house again, we could describe the same house differently without actually changing any of the visuals. So let's try another example. Again, same house. She rolled up to the house, avoiding the potholes the rain inevitably brought, no matter how often the roads in the area were mended. Recent storms had been so vicious that there were dirt splatters over the windows of the house. Brown, small, the house in the middle of a rain-lashed yard like a toad in the mud, 
still trying to break itself free from the landscape. Its windows slitted in dark, as if it weren't yet sure it wished to fully open itself up to the ravaging elements. So, so <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So here you use words like um, yeah, the house having dirt splatters, but you give a reason for them. You mention the rains, right? So you're basically saying this isn't a um, this is a con contemporary thing. Uh, con uh, um, context. Oh, yeah, it's like it's, it's context. This is not it's it's a perpetual state, right? Yeah. And you use words like brown, small, toad, slitted and dark, not yet, not yet sure, open, which suggests sympathy might be needed because of some ravaging element that you also make explicit. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And even though you've used another creature, an amphibian, uh, to describe this house, what you've done is you've given the house fears and hopes, right? Or the, the, the toad. And you suggest that it's been rather used and abused by something that's much greater than itself. Like its its appearance is not necessarily its fault. And it could be something more given a chance. Yeah. Thank, thank you for breaking that out so well. Let's try another version just to show how flexible description is. Okay. She rolled up to the house, swerving to avoid potholes. It was like playing video games, dodging to get through to the big boss or the treasure. At the end of the road was a house. It didn't look like much at first. There couldn't have been more than one bedroom, a kitchen, a sitting room in it, if that. Like a one-man protective cave, its windows pointed to the once high price of glass. There had to be history here, weathered and battered, but still standing in its hubble pride, even amidst the muddy yard left behind by the recent rain. A bath to get the mud off the windows would probably help. So here you've coded the description with comparing the path to playing video games um, you, you, you use words like one man protective cave history weathered battered humble and pride you mentioned the once high price of glass so here you've also contextualized its current state yeah yeah now think of these three descriptions and imagine what kind of impression um that you would have reading this and who you would think lives in the house? Like what impression of the person living in the house would you have before you even saw them? And don't worry, uh, we'll put the text in the show notes so that you can take a look and like read them and poke through them on paper. Um, so as listeners, you probably have three different ideas of the house for each description, like three different ideas, one for each description. Even though I was describing the same house each time, you saw it in your mind differently because I wanted you to. I marked yeah. certain things and didn't mark others. Um, I drew parallels to some things, discarded other possible parallels. And as authors, we have an amazing amount of control with our camera and word choice. As I told someone recently on Reddit, when I figured out that my job as an author was to manipulate people's minds, my job got a lot clearer. <laughs> But it's it's true, right? And it's all part of storytelling. Description is still moving a story forward, adding in the layers. Yeah. So for the sake of time, we have repeated this exercise with a focus on a character, but we're not going to go through it on air. We're going to put it in our handout so you can read it if you want to play with this deeper. Yes. And I think the, the description of the house, I think we'll also put it in the bonus material slash handout instead of in the show notes. I think that makes it a bit less messy, but it will all be there for you to have a look uh, at. Yeah. We keep promising checklists and handouts for, you know, episodes 9, 10 and 11. It's going to be massive. So, yes. And I'm, I'm counting on you to create it, though. As long as you make it pretty. I will make it pretty. All right, so one more thing before we start to wrap up. We talked about Twilight a lot today, and I just want to acknowledge that there's a lot more in terms of representation to unwrap and the experience of the Quillette tribe that was not accurately represented in the series. Did I say the name right again? Quillute. Quillute. Um, the reason we didn't go into all of that completely today is because of space and time and it went beyond the boundaries of today's topic. We may get into more later when we discuss race and we have left some links in the show notes if you wanna read up on it yourself before we pop potentially get there or in case we don't. For example, the Quileute tribe and the Burke National uh, History Museum um, 
in Seattle. They collaborated to answer a lot of questions and set a few things right for the record. And I just want to point people in that direction. Mm. Um, we have no intention of asking the tribal members themselves how they feel about the films and the books. They put it out into the world. They've said their piece. And we're going to model what we preach here and not cause additional emotional burden. And we ask that you do the same. Yes, because they've already done the emotional labor by collaborating with the museum. Yes. Right? So we can just learn from that and we can go online and search for our answers ourselves. Okay, I think that about wraps it up. Um, we'll be coming back to these concepts uh, and the sentences that we're writing for the first year to explore different topics. But now you hopefully have a grasp of marked versus unmarked. Yes, it only took us three episodes. <laughs> only three. Yes. <laughs> yes. So there is one more episode in this season. Um, so one more in December. Other than some discussion of uh, holidays traditionally observed in December, we've left it pretty open for questions. So if you're listening, you have any questions, comments, things that stood out to you, um, please send those in if you haven't yet. Um, and we'll be talking a bit more of what you can expect in season two in that episode as well, which will start in January. Yes. So um, send those questions to diversityinwriting at gmail.com. That's diversityinwriting at gmail.com. Um, and yes, we are going to be taking a little bit of a holiday. Maybe you are. I have it on good authority. If I don't produce that draft, I'm in trouble. So I'll be in my office, except for when my friends visit. I am looking forward to that for a couple of days. But, you know, I keep asking myself why I can't write shorter books. I, 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 have, been, I have been struggling with that same question. Um, so I don't have the answer to that, unfortunately. Oh, no. I guess I'll just keep writing these really long ones. Please do. Please do. All right. So uh, next week, then, for our uh, season's final episode. Yes, I will talk to you next week. Next week. Bye. Have you reached that sweet place where you've written out your entire story? It's a wonderful feeling. You've worked so hard for this, spent so many long hours at the keyboard or talking to yourself via recorder, then going over it again at the computer. It's been mostly internal work, and it's often been alone. But now, it's time to take it from rough to polished. And for that, outside perspective is essential. Let me help you. As a developmental editor, I, Bethany A. Tucker, will take your hand, sort through your draft, answer your questions, and help you polish it until your work shines. You don't have to do this alone. It doesn't matter if this is your first book or your 10th book, whether you've published this book already and want to make it better, or you're teetering on the edge, eager to publish for the first time. Together, we can take your book to the next level. Contact me via links in the show notes or at theartandscienceofwords at gmail.com to take the next step. Thank you for listening. Music for this show was written and produced by Eric Mills. If you want to join the conversation, fill out our write and read a questionnaires. Both can be found in the show notes and on our website, representationmatters.art. That's dot A-R-T. If you want to be the first to hear when a new episode comes out, sign up to our newsletter. And if you found this helpful, please rate and review on your favorite podcast app to help other writers find us too.